It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, I'm Anoush. I'm Alpha. And I'm Stephen. And on today's New Statesman podcast, we discuss England's defeat in the Euros... And you ask us, do the Lib Dems actually have any policies? So we're recording the morning after a very sad night of defeat of the England football team in the Euros final. Stephen, you were actually there, weren't you? What was it like? Well, you know, I mean, the the first 45 minutes were great. I'm aware this is probably the most on-brand thing I will ever say about football. Wembley continues to, in my view, be a very unpleasant match-going experience, in part because everything around how it's set up is geared up to going, hey, why don't we maximise the number of reasons people might drink on an empty stomach? From, you know, the fact that like, <laughs> they basically <laughs> the threat of someone taking in a packed lunch is, you know, I was about to say akin to someone storming the field. Seeing as someone actually did storm the, the pitch, this, if you, you watched it on television, you, you might, you probably missed out on the fact, like, this guy was, was ripped. He was stacked, right? At first, it was one of those things where, because it turns out I really need to get my prescription checked. At first, I was just like, my God, there's a, you know, a, a slightly overweight naked woman who's run onto the pit. And when he got in the corner near her stuff, I was like, oh, no, they are being um, outrun by a very, very, you know, like this guy was, as the kids say, swole. But yeah, it was great atmosphere, great experience. I obviously did think that, um, I, yeah, I thought Italy would would, would, would beat us, you know, in, in, in regular time. So in some ways, it was a relief for that not to have happened. I, I became uneasy about the penalty shootout the minute then, partly because I didn't think we had enough midfield control to to take people off anyway. And then that the body language of the penalty take, of the people who'd been brought on to take the penalty was just so awful that it just... Uh, uh. But I am a bit of a Glory England supporter in that when um, Arsenal lose in big games, I kind of am grumpy and sulky for, you know, sometimes... I was about to say hours, and then I thought, let's, let's be honest here, at least a day afterwards... Whereas with England, I always have this kind of sense of millions of people watched the game. I mean, like, my mother's both watched the game, right? That never happens, right? Like, that was, you know, like, it's like, there's the sort of, you get the like, oh, you know, we've all come together. We've had this, you know, fairly unifying experience. And, oh, well, there's always, there's always next time. Whereas, you know, when Arsenal do badly, I'm not like, oh, there's always next time. I'm like, oh, God, everything is awful. What was it like for you, like, watching it on, on TV? Yeah, I don't think I noticed someone running onto the pitch or anything really, but that is because I was watching it behind a lot of heads 
really it was just a regular experience for me every time I go anywhere like a gig or a festival just can't really see a thing <laughs> so <laughs> yeah I, I thought it was a really good exciting match and I felt so so sorry for the pressure being piled on to the people who had to take the decisive penalties I just felt they, the nerves on their face it's just horrible to look at coupled with the horrible feeling of dread because you knew that there was going to be some nastiness afterwards as it turned out there was so that was actually something that was on my mind when I was watching it as well it's always a double-edged sword I mean I'm not someone who watches football so it's a double-edged sword following the England team in international tournaments because you know, you feel so excited for them and you feel swept up in the sort of unifying spirit of of supporting England and wanting them to win and the patriotism and, and all the fun of it. I sometimes think it's it's almost like following two different tournaments because some of the ways that some of the fans behave is is really disgusting and you kind of feel a bit grotty even being associated with it. So that's that's kind of how I feel this morning a little bit. It's a bit double-edged, isn't it, sometimes? And you kind of feel, well, you know, you don't deserve to win this tournament if that's the way you're going to behave when you lose. Or even if that's the way you're going to behave, you know, in the scenes around Wembley. I don't know if you saw any of this, Stephen. You probably didn't, but people kind of charging their way into the stadium and, and then all the bad behaviour, like booing the anthems. I know, I know apparently that's that's quite a regular thing to happen, but, you know, it doesn't seem very classy to me. And uh, it, it stops me from having a pure experience, I think. I don't know whether that's a little bit too grumpier, grumpier thing to say, but sometimes you feel like there's sort of, yeah, there's sort of two tournaments going on in your head. <laughs> I think it's interesting you say that because obviously, Alva, you obviously aren't English. And one of the things we've talked about in the politics office over the course of the thing is like, you know, feeling more Irish during some of these games than other. And I, kind of, and I think I completely identify with on the news about this kind of weird duality of, yeah, I, I hated the the booing of the anthem I find rude and tedious, but actually what I hated more was the, I don't know if you could see that here's something, was the, for most of the first half, was the continual booing of any time an Italian player had the ball, which I kind of felt, look, we have home advantage, particularly we have home advantage because there's a pandemic, which means that there are even fewer Italy fans in the stadium than there would be otherwise. It's just distasteful. Also, I think, you know, the moral sanction of a boo is powerful because it is used sparingly, you know, when someone cheats or does a horror challenge or has ever played for Tottenham Hotspur. And if you just do it to any Italian player, right, it's just, yeah, it's just distasteful. I didn't like it at all. As our non-duality member of the podcast, Alva, what did, what did you make of it all? Well, I feel like I need to confess that I didn't watch the whole thing. So I've watched all the important bits in that I watched the goal um, at the start and then I went off, put on Casablanca, cleaned the kitchen, went back thinking that England would have won and then watched the, the whole penalty shootout. So I feel like I got all the important bits and skipped the Italian goal and who needed to see that anyway? <laughs> Very sensible. I really, really did, did share in the emotion of seeing those three young players missed their penalties and and I think shared your kind of worrying about the backlash against them and also just this I was just really really struck by the psychological hurdle of that especially Marcus Rashford's because I find it very interesting a, a colleague of ours in the Westminster Press Gallery tweeted yesterday after the match about how there's still a very important legacy from this tournament and this England team 
under Gareth Southgate's leadership that he was saying that it has sort of modelled a progressive nationalism for his peers that he hadn't really experienced before. And I think that's really interesting because, I mean, it's entirely true that they have modelled a particular set of values that actually, in terms of the stuff that we talk about on the podcast every week, has run absolutely counter to the culture war that we have been seeing played out at the top of government, that actually efforts to make things like taking the knee a point of controversy or or more generally the sort of Black Lives Matter idea, just sort of talking about the racism that footballers and people in the public eye and people in general experience, that has actually just like not been a fault line in this debate at all. And the people like Lee Anderson, as you referenced, Stephen, the people who sought to make that an issue were humiliated, basically, because they just didn't get to share in the enjoyment of England reaching the final in the way that everyone else did. I suppose I just I still just have a sort of weird set of feelings about football. And it's it's funny because I obviously don't go on about it a lot. But then it just so happens that we did a whole podcast about my weird feelings about football before. I mean, I was wondering why it is that I can, you know, live in England for years and still not feel like not really feel like the England team is for me, you know, to be happy for my English friends and colleagues that England were in the final, sad that they lost, but not feel like it's anything to do with me. I have still just been very aware of all the things that we've talked about before, the way like this is such a man's game. It's the, you know, even if lots of women enjoyed the match, lots of women are really keen football fans, lots of women play football. I watched the quarterfinals with like a whole team of women who play football, like a women's football team, which was great. But I still just, I'm just really struck by how much it's about, men and masculinity and the way that it's it's just this sort of ritual for you know English men <laughs> to to just like put put on their England shirts and have a pint and do this sort of guttural moan that you've never heard from them before and never will hear again yeah and I, I think I was aware of the kind of the nastier underbelly of it yesterday the racism directed towards some of the players afterwards and also there's just the sort of male aggression that was on show yesterday I was just really, really conscious that domestic abuse rates shoot up after, well, after England plays full stop, but especially if England loses, and it clearly has nothing to do with the the game itself. But I just thought that the way that game intersects with uglier bits of masculinity is still just, I just think it's, it's still a bit tricky for me. I did enjoy how many huge hordes of straight men were singing Atomic Kitten, though. Yes, the the large number of people doing the, you know, Southgate, you can make me whole again. It's always an odd experience because, you know, like all Arsenal fans, I believe that football should mostly be listened to in genteel, despairing silence. The thing that, that I think is particularly, uh, I always find strange about watching the England team is, is one, of course, the people who are only interested in football at the World Cup and champion and, and European and Euros. I, I understand it a bit, but I also feels a bit strange because it's just like, you know you're watching like a less good version of this, right? Then if you really want to like watch a good football game, you should I was about to say you should watch an Arsenal game and even I don't believe that anymore. Uh, you know, you should watch a Champions League match, right? But I think the other thing I find strange about it is that well there is just an edge to international football that then yeah, I think if someone says, you know, I hate Spurs or, you know, I hate Birmingham or I hate 
Manchester United, right? Now, there are a couple of exceptions in club football, right? But there's like a sort of like fun hatred in club football, mostly. Whereas it is just kind of like weird. Yeah, the the aggression of it. And there was, which I mean, I do partly blame on the fact that I feel that Wembley is a structure which kind of seems to be built around a dislike of the match-going fan. The weird thing is, is as, as, as sad as I was, you know, particularly for... For Saka, the final penalty taker, and, and kind of probably, not probably, definitely the best Arsenal player at the moment. Although I felt very sad for him, I was at least relieved to be spared the discourse of like a prime minister who's visibly could not be less interested in football if he tried. Yeah, I'm reminded of in 2010 when David Cameron said, at least we were spared the indignity of a penalty shootout after we've been absolutely tonked by Germany in the World Cup. And it's like, no, no, Dave, no one was sitting there going, well, well, at least we got to leave a 90 minutes. Like, I mean, that was a game you could have comfortably left at 70 minutes. It was not a good experience. Uh, so I was kind of relieved that we were spared sort of party political posturing after it. There would have been quite an unseemly race to kind of use the trophy for whatever Boris Johnson or, you know, or other politicians would want to use it to, to sort of prove their point. In a way, there is some similarity that makes me feel slightly uncomfortable with the look at what immigration does for this country type discourse as well. I don't know if you agree with this and perhaps again, I'm being too grumpy, but you know, you feel like saying, well, actually lots of these players aren't immigrants <laughs> they're just ethnic minorities and then also and also you kind of feel like saying well if they lose does that mean <laughs> you know do you have to be exceptional to be an ethnic minority football player you know and and there's quotes from other players that I've been reading from other other teams who say you know when I I think there's a French player I don't know if I've got I may have got this completely wrong but he says when I win I'm French and when I lose I'm of Congolese origin or whatever and so some of that this although I love to celebrate the achievements of immigrants and my dad himself was an immigrant I feel like a real affinity with with sort of diaspora communities I still I still find that that side of it quite uncomfortable as well as you know the the potential for the right to claim a kind of you know nationalist victory on their part yeah, completely agree with all that. I, I actually, I hate basically all of the, oh, the England squad without immigration articles. There's a particularly, to my mind, grating and offensive graphic, which I can, okay, yeah, it's been done with good intentions, right? But it's like the the England without without immigration, where it's basically just Stones and one other player, because, you know, Harry Kane's, I, I think either one or both of his parents are from the Republic of Ireland. You know, if, if someone did a, a New Statesman magazine without immigration, special and they just left the politics column blank to make some weird woke point about how well I might have been born here and I don't I think my dad was born here but you know, like it's one of these things just like but you know like how actually you know I, I could have like if I wanted to I could have qualified to like write politics columns for the Zambian new states <laughs> I, I, I would actually be really upset I, I, I would find it deeply offensive and upsetting um for someone to I mean like what so so what so Stones is the only real one more because he's been here for what more than four generations? Like we're an island nation. I don't know if anyone noticed, we're like however many thousands of miles away from Africa, from where all life sprang. And it's just like it's like it's this thing where it's just like this is just blood and soil nationalism, but done in like a way that people clearly think is a bit woke. I just find it a bit distasteful. I know it's well meaning. I know that, you know, I, I'm sure that for some ethnic minority Brits, they look at the like 
England without immigration squalls and they feel sort of welcomed rather than faintly repulsed. But I really don't like it. Not least because as you say, Anoush, right? Like, well, like, do you know what? And I think actually in some ways for me, the essence of politics is how we treat people who aren't particularly talented or perhaps aren't particularly bright. You know, the guy who like whose parents came here from Nigeria, who's a bit slow and is like well-meaning and decent to his neighbours, but like is never going to, you know, rise much uh, economically or like, you know, have a particularly good job is... Also, you know, if they are, you know, good citizens and their kind of things, they are also a success of uh, this is immigration. And even if they aren't, right, they're still a citizen and a human being with rights. And I just find it, you know, uh, yeah, I, I really do not like any of that sort of stuff. I just, I think it's a bit distasteful. And to end on hopefully a more optimistic note, I like what you wrote, Stephen, this morning about how the image, the sort of abiding image of the match was actually of Gareth Southgate embracing Bakayo Saka after he, after his penalty was saved. And actually that's not a sort of expression of affection and compassion that was extended to Gareth Southgate when, when he missed his own decisive penalty. I, I liked what you said about that because that shows that there, there has been some, some progress. And I think that does, that that does link to what Alva was saying about this sort of optimistic, open, sort of cool nationalism that this English squad has represented. You know, it's a little it's a little bit like the kind of nationalism that we saw during the Cool Britannia period, where it was kind of cool to like Britain, except without the sort of very white and laddie <laughs> overtones. Yeah, so there's a similar picture of like Southgate having his arm sort of patted by Terry Venables and you know, but the thing is, is ultimately like, it's a very loving paternal gesture by Southgate, but also you can tell them he's crying, right? And he's being allowed to cry. And it's like, and we're not having discourse about him. It's not like Gaza's tears in 1990, which, you know, kind of things people talked about for you, like, oh, do you remember when he cried on there? So, well, yeah, of course he cried. He's a, I was about to say a professional athlete, which in some ways is perhaps not the best way of describing Gaza, but yeah, you know, he's, was a, top footballer who had just seen his chance at one of the biggest prizes slip away. And I think, you know, the fact that obviously football uh, in particular does have a way to go, right? In the men's game, there are, you know, we have yet to see a, a player feel able to come out uh, in the top flight while still playing. Yeah, that kind of intimacy and, and sort of for a, a man to be able to be fragile and upset in public without, and it, in of itself, not to pass comment. I think you can also draw a direct line between the fact that that is something acceptable and the fact that Jordan Henderson sent a lovely tweet in reply to this LGBT fan talking about their first day as a match-going fan, which, you know, of course you're welcome. And it it created no discourse whatsoever. I think, Alva, you're right about how, you know, one of the things that is a bit unpleasant about is how sort of overwhelmingly blokey and male and, you know, how it has all sorts of weird dynamics. But equally, it is hugely positive that masculinity in in the UK is more openly emotional. I mean, you know, I I think... still has some way to go for being actually being emotional, more openly emotional without judgment than it has been before. If you've been enjoying our podcast and want to find out more about what we think and some of our colleagues too, then why not subscribe to the New Statesman? You can get 12 weeks for £12. Go to newstatesman.com forward slash subscribe 12. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is 
is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. And now it's time for a section we like to call You Ask Us. And Mark has sent in a question for today's episode, specifically directed at Alva and her so-called obsession with the Lib Dems, which I think is a little bit strong. He asks, it seems to me to be a bit of a policy desert at the moment with little to say, no clear positions on anything in particular being taken, and with no wider evidence that firmer policies will be forthcoming as the electoral cycle progresses. Are they really that arid or are they different from how they come across? Well, thank you to Mark for writing in specifically with a Lib Dem question for me. We were dismayed before we started recording, we thinking that that was a question about the Labour Party. <laughs> Stephen in particular, very upset that people still think that Labour doesn't have any policies. Uh, yeah, I'm pleased that that was asked about the Lib Dems because I've just published a longer piece on what they're thinking in the wake of that Chesham and Amersham by-election victory and what their plan is, planning for the next general election whenever it would will be and I think that that's actually one of the the big unspoken tensions underlying the current strategy that if you read my piece or if you just talk to any liberal democrat politician I think you'll find that 80% of both the piece and the conversation is really about conservative weaknesses at the moment and particularly in the south of England in this so-called blue wall as we've talked about before in all of those seats, they're not all in the south of England, but in conservative facing seats where the Liberal Democrats are second, seats kind of resembling Chesham and Amersham. So it means that you have this sort of discussion about the toxicity of Boris Johnson in particular, a broader malaise among traditional Tories about the way the Conservative Party under his leadership has just been going about politics. Plus, this sort of feeling of the party leaving them behind because the Conservatives are focused more on the red wall at the moment. And so that's sort of a general messaging problem, but also a specific policy problem with things like planning reforms set to affect these southern seats more than a lot of the Conservatives' targets in the north of England or the seats that they hope to retain in the north of England. So it, it means that the Liberal Democrats are very aware of the weaknesses that they can tap into where they fill that vacuum, even just in terms of basic things about they have massively reinvested in their ground campaigning. Uh, Davy has reversed a lot of cuts that were made to the Liberal Democrat campaign team in 2011 has massively reinvested in that and they have this strategy of just becoming the best campaigning party in British politics, is how they would put it, particularly tapping into the fact that they don't feel like the Conservatives are going to resource those seats very well at the next general election because they'll be facing two ways in the Red Wall and the Blue Wall. But it means that I've, I've 
already spoken for a few minutes and haven't reached anything mm-hmm. about the Liberal Democrat message or policies. And the thing that, I mean, when you speak to any Liberal Democrat po- politicians, they will eventually come onto what they describe as their strong message and mention under Ed Davey taking a strong stance on the climate emergency and on social care, which he, of course, has a particular interest in and understanding of because he's also a carer to a disabled son. He and then the rest of the party just hope that they can shine a light on this massive policy area with a bit more compassion and understanding and policy insight than the other parties. But it definitely was completely drowned out in Chesham and Amersham. It wasn't, people weren't voting for that party because of its stance on social care or climate change. They were voting for a party which said on its leaflets that it was their last chance to make sure that, you know, that they don't tear up the Chilterns, the last chance to save the Chilterns. And so I think that there probably is a bit of a tension there. I mean, I think that if you go and look at Liberal Democrat policies, one of the great things about that party is that at conference they do pass very considered policies and have very interesting discussions about all of them. So I don't think that it's a case that they don't have any policies whatsoever. And even in terms of messaging, they know what they want to be focusing on. But in reality, that's really, really far down the far down the agenda. It's sort of punching conservative bruises first and foremost and focusing on local issues and then any sort of distinctive Liberal Democrat message is a little bit lost, I think. It's odd because I realised the reason why I was horrified when I thought this was a question about Labour is I thought I've got another podcast in which I can say, if anything, their problem isn't they have too many policies. But I think that's also true of the Liberal Democrats, right? But I think the important thing to understand about the Lib Dems is one of the things I love about Lib Dem conferences, I love them, their, their policymaking process. It's the best conference to cover if you are interested in ideas, partly because because the no offence, the stakes are so small when they're in opposition, the rancour is relatively low. And also because ultimately it is a smaller party in terms of its ideological divisions. I, I, I agree with the the comments some Lib Dems have made about, I think one of the reasons why the last leadership election was a good one is actually they did a, a better job of having an open disagreement in which, yes, you know, I don't think it was necessarily great for Vera Hobhouse's future prospects under Ed Davey to basically be like, Let's be clear, there's one candidate in this race who's a massive Tory. But that was better than any of the other Lib Dem leadership elections I have covered, in which the actual substance of the divisions between the candidates has kind of been, you know, almost treated as gauche to discuss than the party agrees about stuff. You know, the leader can't really set policy. Policy is set by the conference floor. And there is something about opposition parties in particular that I think they love to go, oh, we have a problem. Do you know, we'll solve our problem, more policy. And that there is no lid on that in the Lib Dem process kind of means that, well, I mean, obviously under Keir Starmer, the Labour leadership has, 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 you know, done this all by itself. Like, let's flood the zone with a thousand and one policies. But really, they, they do genuinely have on any on any policy area you care to name loads of, and I would actually argue an excessive amount of policy, because one the second you are in office, right, and there's this thing called the civil service and there's this huge like policy making machine, your policies move from kind of the sort of impressionistic stuff about aims that you can do in opposition to detailed, okay, right, so we aim to do X and as a result, and you know, now we're in office, we're gonna do X, but we're gonna do it in this in this way or, or this shape. 
but also because policies are so much in opposition or how you kind of give off a general sense of your party's vibe yeah as as alva explains like those are the two things that they have set themselves out on i, I think you know i have a lot of time for ed davy but I, I think that the care policy is a mistake in from a, a from a from a lib dem distinctiveness position because social care will either do two things in this parliament it will continue to be a neglected policy area paid attention to by absolutely nobody and we will keep on this podcast going well there's an un- a question about how long you can run the state while you know local councils are increasingly overcome by their care costs and it creates this massive hole in the bucket called the NHS like I, either that will continue to be sustainable for another parliament or the dominant critic of of care policy will be John Ashworth, not because or you know whoever the health, shadow health secretary is, not because you know Labour's care policy is 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 brilliant. In fact, actually, their care policy is one of the areas where they they do genuinely, I think, have a bit of a policy vacuum at the moment. But they are the bigger party, right? You saw it with like Yvette Cooper basically getting to become the refugees person. Tim Farron got there first, but Yvette Cooper is you know a politician in a big party. So she is, you know, more box office in the minds of the media, more box office for a whole bunch of other, re- yeah, other reasons just in terms of people thinking about what eyeballs will happen. And I just think that the care policy is, is just, is not a good Lib Dem retail policy for them to have as the heart of their offer, because what is painful about it for another party to occupy and steal? Very little. Whereas things like, you know, the penny and the pound for income tax, which obviously they've had for years and they... Yeah, they don't need to to start talking about that again, right? Stuff like that, which is for whatever reason difficult for the other parties to occupy, works quite well for them. But they do genuinely have loads of policies. They will, you know, have loads more at the end of this next set of conference. Yeah, but the the big thing is, is unlike any other party, right? A policy a policy in the Lib Dems is not one of those things that like Ed Davey can stand up and announce and go, oh, here's a surprise, right? If if the Lib Dems do their media management right, right, to take well, okay, maybe this wasn't such a good idea. But to take, like, Joe Swinson did a very successful job of being like, hmm, it looks like the Dem Conference is going to vote for a revoke policy. I should make myself the agent of revoke rather than its victim. And that was presented in a way which made it seem as if it was something that was solely within Joe Swinson's control. But it wasn't within Joe Swinson's control. It was something the conference floor had to vote on. And the leadership, the Lib Dem leadership is defeated on the conference floor. Yeah, not all the time, but pretty regularly. And I think, if yeah, if anything, the problem then, the leader cannot go, you know, here's what we're about and guarantee that it's carried through. Even before you get onto the fact that, you know, the the big achievement of Vince Cable's leadership, as well as the you know the two very successful elections he led them into, was was moving the party into one where it was actually pretty consistently ha- was in a better place on housing. And the irony is, is one of the reasons why some Lib Dems didn't want to vote for Leila Moran is that she you know is very much like you know is is seen as someone who's is very anti any actual housing in practice in her own seat. But of course, the party has very much immediately been like, a by-election, you say? Time to get the NIMBY-mobile. <laughs> but that is, you know, part of, part and parcel of how third parties win seats in, in, in first-past-the-post. But yeah, they do have loads of policy, if anything, too much. I agree with that. I agree with the, the risk of unveiling too many policies that you put at the heart of your offer, especially at this stage in the electoral cycle, because you like, like you say, there's, there's, the risk, there's the risk that you're defined by it in a way that just means that you know, the policy area sort of takes up more of the vacuum of conversation. And obviously, that's going to be taken up by the opposition party and the and the government. So, you know, if the more that the Lib Dems talk about social care, the more 
probably media focus there's going to be on what Labour are saying about social care or what a select committee is saying about social care or what the government is saying. Or there's the actual, you know, direct risk of having your policies stolen and branded as, you know, a government policy. So there's obviously that risk. And also, I think what what Vince Cable really understood when he was Lib Dem leader was that, you know, just in terms of the day to day of doing politics for a third party like the Lib Dems, the only way you're really even going to get an inch in a news article is just to have a really spicy quote in there. So I think it's more about setting the vibe, you know, making sure that you do get your quotes in in news copy. And I thought that was one of the most interesting bits of your piece, Alva, which I thought was really good. And I think um, listeners should go and read about what the Liberal Democrats are planning to do in the blue wall, because you actually say how they how they sort of brought the term blue wall into the wider lexicon rather than just a thing that sort of nerds like, like mm. us refer to because of that quite goofy stunt with the blue bricks and the orange hammer which was incredibly cringe but it was it was on every single broadcast report after the Cheshire and Amersham by-election result and I thought that showed a sort of glimpse of the kind of Vince Cable probably wouldn't have done something as goofy but he definitely understood that you you had to say and do kind of maybe slightly eccentric or outrageous things to 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 even get a look in yeah, that that's just absolutely what you have to do if you're the third party in politics. Um, you just have to lean into the cringe to. Yeah, I, <laughs> yeah. I think that I think they they did that really really effectively. I've I've been speaking to some other colleagues in the press gallery who who just thought it was cringe and that it was sort of a mistake and didn't look terribly serious. Whereas I think that that was a a masterstroke. Quite honestly, even I think. The, the idea of the blue wall, we were seeing a tiny bit of after the local elections. So the phrase had already been coined. But we've known for a while that these seats were sort of in play for the Lib Dems. And this is these are the ones that they would be targeting. But I think I recall last year it was being referred to as the yellow ring, which mm. never really, never <laughs> really took off in the same way. So I think, yeah, the way they've They've cemented this as an idea. And, you know, one senior Lib Dem was saying to me, you know, not only does it mean that political journalists and commentators and everything are now talking about this phrase, it means that people sitting at home in a blue wall seat will think I'm in one of those seats and I can send the same message to the Conservative Party that the people in Cheshire and Amersham did, that, you know, that they're sick of the Conservative Party, sick of being taken for granted, as they would say it. And they were sent a very clear message that the Liberal Democrats could win in that seat. And so I think that's, you know, that was quite an achievement in a couple of seconds with, you know, some blue bricks and a little orange hammer. So I thought, yeah, I thought that was that was really smart. And I actually think that for all the the Liberal Democrats are not going to say that their messaging on climate and social care and everything else is secondary. It just plainly is. Like the strategy going forward is one of saying, we know that you're dissatisfied with this Conservative Party. You should you should come to us. And if you look, there are all these very considered policies there. But first and foremost, it's about tapping into people's disaffection with the Conservative Party. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anoush Shekelian, and my colleagues Alva Ray and Stephen Bush. We're produced by Adrian Bradley, and our music is Devil with the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. Please leave us a review and don't forget to subscribe. And if you'd like to submit a question to You Ask Us, you can email one in to podcasts at newstatesman.co.uk. Listener.
Hey, Drew Scott here, and I'm Jonathan Scott, reminding you that life's better with a home policy from American Family Insurance. They can help you get just the right protection at just the right price and help you save when you bundle home and auto. Kind of like Goldilocks and the Three Bears. It'll be just right for you. We love a custom build. American Family Insurance. Insure carefully. Dream fearlessly. Get a quote and find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.